I believe that uh, when we walk in intimacy with the Lord, our whole life changes. Your past, your present, your addictions, your struggles, the things that people have done to you, the way people have abandoned you or labeled you, the things that you have partnered with in your heart and mind, I don't care what they are. Only He has the authority to tell you who you are. We have to ask Holy Spirit to download His heart to our heart. We have to be people who raise their hands and say, I'm here, this is my city, this is my region, it's not somebody else's problem. And if you've been here at all, you know that Contextual Revolution is the series where we're taking scriptures that may be familiar, may seem familiar, we may have been taught them a hundred times, and, and we're taking them and we're putting them into their context, historical, literary context, cultural context, and we're simply asking within context, do they mean what, what we think that they mean? And so I decided to do Matthew 24. Yay, fun, end times, woo! And... Um, uh, so I'll just claim that I was led by God, and, uh, and I have the microphone, so you have to, to accept that, right? Um, no, I really, <laughs> I really did feel like God was nudging me to teach Matthew 24. I just, he just forgot to tell me um, how long it was going to take. And uh, so let's, let's, let's look at, at Matthew 24 here, and I'll, and I'll catch you guys up uh, uh, really quickly, uh, if I can. I'll catch you up. What we've been talking about is Matthew 24. We've been talking about how the normal teaching on Matthew 24 is from a futurist perspective, which means that everything in Matthew 24 is going to take place in in the future. Everything in Revelation is still yet to come in the future. And that's what the typical uh, teaching and perspective in the church for about the last 130, maybe 140 years, that's what's typically been taught is that it's all in the future. And as we have put it back into context historically, we are discovering that it might be possible to take Jesus's words literally. And it's possible that the early church actually believed that Jesus was being literal when he said all of the things that I just talked to you about in, in, well, he didn't have the chapters of Matthew 21, 22, 23, 24, but he's, all the things that I just talked to you about, these are going to come to pass come to pass in your generation. And so as we're looking at Matthew 24, it helps us historically to think about this and ask this question. What if we take Jesus' words in Matthew 24 literally? What if all that he prophesied has already happened? And we know, we know from historical fact that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. We know that 1.1 million Jews were killed in, in, in that destruction. We know that 8,500 priests were put to death. We know that the genealogical records were burned. We know that the temple was burned and was torn apart stone by stone. We know that no Christians died in that whole episode, in that whole war. Um, all of this is historical fact, and so you can believe Whatever you want, as I've said many times, I'm not here to try to convince you. My, I, this is not a church where we, we align because we all agree on every single scripture and that if you disagree with the guy or the woman up front, then you, then you, you can't fit here. Eh, that's not what we do. We want people to have a passion to learn, to dig into the word, and we want to be able to look at these things and say, um, this is verifiable, and, and while it might not be what you're used to thinking of it is, I'm inviting you to have a little bit different perspective. Um, I shared this too. I grew up 
a futurist, and when I was, and that's awesome. And when I was 13 years old, I read a book called um, Last Day's Madness, and that helped me in my in my my journey. And it wasn't because I believed everything that was in the book Last Day's Madness. It, I, it was because I was able to have a different perspective, and the, the the power of really being able to say, "Wait, there's different ways to look at this. There's different ways to understand that. This is incredible." And that gave me the freedom to be able to walk forward because uh, I think I've told you guys the story, but as a futurist, um, raised a futurist where everything is in the future, I was scared to death of who, who was the Antichrist and what was the mark of the beast and what if I accidentally get the mark of the beast? What if someone tricks me into taking the mark of the beast? Oh, is this someone tattooed a 666 on my arm? Ah, what if, what if Jesus comes and I'm, in a, and I'm in a movie theater because I'm pretty sure that movie theaters have this, this roof that's built across them where the rapture is incapable of reaching through the sin of the movie theater is uh, um, so I was I was raised in a wonderful family a kid a lot but I was raised in a wonderful family, a wonderful church but maybe we erred a little bit on the side of too much focus on the end times and a little bit too much focus on performance but uh, so I, I grew up with that future perspective and this and the last day's madness and the reality of what I'm sharing with you guys I'm not trying to convince you I'm just I'm just hopefully giving you a different perspective to say, maybe we don't have to be afraid of the future. Maybe we don't have to live in fear. Maybe there's some other ways that we can, we can look at this. So knowing those historical facts that I just gave you about Jerusalem being destroyed, and if you're wondering what the heck is this guy talking about, could I encourage you to go back and listen to the first two messages on, on Matthew 24 that I gave the last uh, a few weeks ago. It might help you catch up a little bit so you don't think that I'm completely um, a heathen in teaching false doctrine. Um, so, but instead of us embracing wholesale this, the futurism that's being taught for the last hundred years or so, I want us to consider what the early church would have believed. And, and I propose to you that what the early church would have believed was that as Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, the great tribulation, that that would have happened in A.D. 70 during the destruction of Jerusalem. They would have believed that the events of AD 70 happened within the time frame that Jesus gave, which was a generation or 40 years. They believed that Jesus gave them eight signs of what would precede this great tribulation, and each of these eight signs were fulfilled prior to A.D. 70, which allowed the early Christians who were paying attention to the signs of the time to be able to escape from this tribulation that Jesus prophesied, and they were saved from destruction. And they would believe, the early church would have believed, that there is no, therefore there is no future great tribulation ahead of them. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that nothing so terrible, when he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the punishment and the outpouring of, uh, on that generation, he said nothing so terrible had ever happened before or would ever happen again. And so I know that this can be a little bit of a paradigm shift, but uh, as I said, we've been looking into this for the last few weeks, and I want you to have that freedom to go back and, and look at this and and, and, and dig in a little bit more. But for us, let's look at Matthew 24. We made it up to, to verse 36 last time that I taught. And so I'm going to read through the last bit of this. And then we will we'll talk a tiny bit about the Antichrist. And then we'll call it a day. Um, because who doesn't want to end a message on the Antichrist? Um, Matthew 24, 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but only the Father um, uh, nor the Son actually is not in a lot of transcripts, and so some of your Bibles will have nor the Son. Some of them will not have, have that. Some will just say nor the Father. Um, 
As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. We talked about what coming means, and it's coming in judgment. It's not a, it's not a rapture-type arrival. Um, but to the Jewish mind, the, the Noahic flood, the, the narrative of the Noahic flood, the story would have brought to mind that reality of, uh, of Noah saying, it's going to rain, the world is going to flood, and they went on saying, whatever, we will continue to eat and drink and be married and it will be fine and you can do it right up until the time of destruction. They were continuing on in their own way of life. And so to the Jewish mind, when Jesus brought this to their perspective, it was one more way that Jesus was reminding them, pay attention to the signs of the time. Don't be like a generation that, that hears what I'm saying as warnings and then carries on doing whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want until that destruction happens. We don't want this to, he didn't want this to be that reality. And what Jesus was basically saying in context was all the things I just talked about, they will happen to this generation. And if you're not paying attention, you could be swept up in the destruction. Matthew 24, 40 through 41. He says this, two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill and one will be taken and the other will be left. Uh, this is not, within, within the context of what we've been teaching and what we've been looking at, this is not talking about a secret rapture. It wouldn't make sense in their conversation that they would be talking about the temple being destroyed, about all of this, all of the wrath and the woes against the Pharisees and then that they would, he would suddenly just interject into the middle of his conversation something about some Someone being left and someone being taken, therefore that's clearly the rapture. That's not what's happening contextually. All that Jesus is doing is he's continuing to warn them that it will be, there will be, uh, there will be no ability for them to be able to tell who is going to be killed, who is going to survive. It, it, there is this arbitrary release of wrath through the Roman army and the historical documentation of this thing. If 1.1 million people died, and that, that's on the low end estimate, it was true that families were were decimated, some were killed, some were left alive, that the Roman army came across the land into Jerusalem and killed people indiscriminately, and so Jesus is continuing to warn them, and this is what happened according to history, and then Matthew 24, 40 through 51, I'm going to read this fast so you guys can write it and check it, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day our, your Lord will come, but understand this, if the owner of the house had not had known at what time the night the thief was coming. He would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. When Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose, and this is Jesus' warning, again, it's the same sequence of the warnings that he's been given. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he 
does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the continued and connected encouragement of Jesus to pay attention to the signs of the times so that you don't fall in his coming in judgment. You don't fall to the destruction that's going to take place. Do you guys see the sequence of how Jesus is warning them? He's repeating and repeating and repeating that warning so that they go, oh, okay, I see that they wouldn't become a generation that forgets his warnings and forgets to watch for the signs because he promised that it would happen within that generation. And so, uh, <clears throat> and in the course of that generation, he didn't want them to become complacent and to stop believing that this, what he was prophesying was going to come to pass. So, um, I know that everything that I'm sharing with you might be, might be a little bit new. It might be different than what you've, what's been taught to you. And, and so I want to give you play, space to just wrestle with that. But sometimes when, when I talk about that and teach this, it, people ask, well, why that particular generation? What, what made that generation so, so bad? Or was there anything indicating why this generation would, would receive um, this, this, this outpouring from the Romans and the destruction from the Romans and be, be, have that tribulation that Jesus was talking about. And so I want to just share with you some verses uh, quickly about that particular generation that Jesus was a part of. This generation never responded correctly to God. Um, Matthew and, and Luke, this generation came to demand a sign so that, and Jesus wouldn't submit to their demands. This generation was called wicked, adulterous, sinful, unbelieving, perverse, warped, and crooked. The queen of Sheba would have condemned this particular generation. Even the men of Nineveh would have condemned this generation. Um, as Jonah was a sign of judgment to, to Nineveh, nice, um, so Jesus was a sign of judgment upon this generation. Jesus would suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This generation would not pass away until all of the curses of Matthew 23 would come upon them. This generation would not pass away until the destruction of Jerusalem had occurred. And all of the sin and the bloodshed of the Old Testament would be charged to this generation. After Jesus swept Jerusalem clean spiritually, Jerusalem became seven times worse in that wicked generation leading up to the A.D. 70 destruction of the temple and of the city. And Peter pled with his audience in Acts chapter 2, one of the most, if not the most famous sermon in, in the New Testament. Peter pled with his audience to save themselves from the corruptness of this generation. This is the generation, if you remember, who when they were deciding whether or not to crucify Jesus said, may his blood be upon us and our children, that, he, that they were a generation that was wicked and twisted and broken, and Jesus called them out on it repeatedly. And that is why he was asking his disciples and teaching his disciples to pay attention to the writing on the wall, if you will, to not be like those who were, were, were partying and having fun right up until the boat floated away, that they wouldn't be those that get caught up in the destruction. And because they paid attention, we have history documenting that the believers, those that stayed true, the elect who stayed true, were able to survive the tribulation or the destruction of Jerusalem. So let's talk for um, five, six minutes about the Antichrist, huh? Great. You guys sound so excited. I won't, I, I, I mean, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to talk more. I'm just, today, I'm going to stop, and I, I'll, I'll be back, and we will talk some more about the Antichrist, because it's so dang fun. Um, 
So the idea that society is heading toward complete destruction and corruption and that there will be one world leader um, and, it will be, and he will be the Antichrist has been around a long time. And, but what I want to begin this week and carry on into, the, into future weeks is looking at scriptures within context and see if that's, that's really what, what the Bible is teaching um, and not just LaHaye. What's the guy's name? Um, Left behind, yeah, that's a good one. Those were good ones. Who read? Who read? Who read all of them? Come on, who read all of the Left Behind series? Raise your hand. I'm not the only one. I read them all. All right, okay, five of you. Wow. All right, sheesh. It's a good thing Jesus didn't come back. All right, maybe he did. So let's look at First and Second John and the idea of the Antichrist. As a single man who is, is, is possessed by Satan and the epitome of evil and bringing about a one-world government, um, it, it's supported by four main scriptures. And so I want to look at the context of those four main scriptures and maybe without the presupposition of futurism and just taking that off. And I'm not saying futurism is wrong. You guys have heard me say it a dozen times. I'm not saying futurism is wrong. I'm simply saying let's take that off as, as a perspective and let's, let's, have, let's look at it without that. And... Um, and see what Scripture says. So, First uh, and Second John, we have to begin by realizing. Anybody want to take a guess at how many times the term Antichrist uh, is in the Book of Revelation? Six, five. You know, you all know I'm tricking you. You know what the answer is? Zero. So, the Book of Revelation doesn't actually contain the word. Uh, Antichrist, and um, but we do see the word Antichrist. There's only four times in the Bible. It's three times in First John, and it's once in Second John. And so I want to look at First and Second John with you guys and understand the context of the timing, the historical context of John's writing is right before the destruction of Jerusalem, um, probably between in the 60s, AD 60s. Um, and so during that time, during that early church movement in the 60s, uh, not not your guys' 60s, but the actual um, 60s. Um, <laughs> whoa, take it easy, all right? What do you say about the 60s? They were awesome. Um, in the A.D. 60s, there was, the early church was being formed, and they were following Jesus with all of our heart, and there was a teaching that was, that was coming to fruition called Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism believed really basically was that, that anything physical was, and emotional was bad, so Stoicism and, and, and separating from the, from the physical was, was what they would do, and they believed that the only thing of value was, was spiritual. And they began to teach that Jesus, because of that, they began to teach that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, which is, of course, heresy because then you're taking away the, the actual physical pouring out of Jesus' blood for the remission of sin. And the, and the early church leaders were writing the, many of the New Testament letters to combat this, this heresy of Gnosticism that was trying to teach people that Jesus didn't in fact come in the flesh and that maybe he was an angel or some sort of spiritual being, but he didn't come in the flesh. And so this is what John was writing his letter in response to was false teaching that was happening in the early church. And so in 1 John 1, th- 1 through 3, it says this, um, he, he, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with 
the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son and with Jesus Christ. So John was writing to prove as an eyewitness that Jesus didn't come back, it didn't come as a spirit being, but as a real physical person. This is John who put his head on Jesus' chest. This is John who says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. That's what John was writing to say. He came as a physical person. John's writing were, writings were focused on those who had fallen into the first century lie of Gnosticism and false teaching. And in both First and Second John, he was calling those who claimed that Jesus didn't have a physical body anti-Christ. This is what he says, 1 John 4, 13, 4, 1 through 3. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already, already in the world. Second John 1 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Any such person who believes that Jesus didn't come in the flesh is the Antichrist. Okay, so I mean it's interesting. So first John 2 18, dear uh, okay, sorry. Um, in other words, the Antichrist isn't a person, it is a belief system, it is a false teaching that is literally anti or against the truth, the reality of Jesus Christ coming as a man, coming as a savior to set us free and to reconcile us to the Father. He said, any person who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is operating in the spirit of the Antichrist. John also referenced the Antichrist spirit as something the early believers had already heard of. It wasn't some sort of future arrival of a, of a single person. 1 John 2.18, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Hour. In the NIV, it actually puts in an extra word. Dear, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, uh, oh, we switched it because it's in the NASB. In the NIV, it says the Antichrist. And in some translations, not, that's not in your Greek manuscript. So if you look it up in the Greek, you're not going to see the word the. But some Bibles and some translators in the 1500s and on, for some reason, they stuck the word the in there. And then they started capitalizing Antichrist. So it became the capital Antichrist because when you stick a the in front of a word, it becomes a pronoun. This is not what's in the Greek. And if you look at the NASB, they say, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, not a singular pronoun, but actually that Antichrist is coming. So if we understand that, and we understand that how that the and the capitalization, it distorts John's original meaning. The early church had heard the Antichrist, this false teaching was coming, but they didn't hear that there was one world ruler Coming. That's not what they heard within context. So with that understanding, we, we can discern the true meaning of John's letter, and, and it's this. As you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So when did the readers 
of John's letters, when had they ever heard a message of, of an impending Antichrist? When did they, when did they heard this? And um, it, considering that the term Antichrist directly refers to false teachers, all we have to do is remember back to Matthew 24 and Jesus warning over and over and over and over again that one of the signs of the end, one of the signs of the last days, one of the signs of this coming destruction would be the arrival on the scene of masses of what? False teachers. This is what they were looking for and that's why he can reference that you have seen this, that you have, been, that you have heard of this. Why would they have heard of it? Because they were being reminded of being faithful to Jesus' prophetic words. And being faithful to walk in relationship with the church, they were being reminded constantly of what Jesus said to watch for in the sign of the time. Rebuke that clock. Oh, I'm just kidding. I don't rebuke the clock. Um, so the Gnosticism that John addressed in one, first and second John was the false teaching that Jesus had predicted. And so the contextual reality that Antichrist does not refer to an individual is further proven by the next part of the verse, 1 John 2.18. Even now, many Antichrists have come. In, in other words, many false teachers had already come. And, uh, and the, word, the use of the word many kind of precludes you from being able to say it would be, makes it impossible to say it would be one, one individual person. First John 2.18, this is how we know it is the last hour. This is a direct, or could this be a direct reference to Jesus' prediction in Matthew 24. In the next verse, John continued to speak about the teachers of the Antichrist, and he goes on to say this, about that heresy. He says this, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Us, true believers, he believed, would discern the truth through the Holy Spirit and they would hold to the truth of Jesus and they would have avoided heresy, they would have avoided false teaching, and they would have been saved in the time of what was coming. And so that's as that word of, trans- of salvation began to take on a powerful meaning within the New Testament letters that was extending beyond just the physical salvation of Jesus' prophecy in, in Matthew 24. Um, okay, so... There's your beginning of introduction to the Antichrist, um, starting with the four verses where it actually says Antichrist in the Bible, and it doesn't say Antichrist any, anywhere else, especially in Revelation. It's good to know. Food for thought, something to talk about while you have lunch today, and try to read the newspaper and discover who is, in fact, the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> let me pray for you guys. Not that anybody reads the newspaper anymore. Oh, you, you like physical newspaper? All right, let me pray for you guys. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to learn. We thank you for the opportunity to engage our brains and our minds. That we aren't here to just be taught something, but we are here to receive, to, to ingest, to consider, to weigh. That we would, each one of us would have a passion for your word. That each one of us would have a passion to live out your kingdom. That we would walk in the fullness of who you are. That we would begin. I, I just pray that we would be, be open to having a perspective change. That when we see things around us like hatred and racism and violence, that we wouldn't look out there and go, oh, that's just a sign of the times and wring our hands and accept it as a reality. But that we would begin to shift and say, maybe, maybe it's simply a sign that it's, a, it's time for the church for us to rise up and to walk out in our manifest glory and power that you have given to us because of who we are in you Jesus and that we would all walk in that authority we would all walk in that identity and that we would push back and break down evil and darkness and sin and that we would not accept it as a reality that belongs in this time in this place that we we pray that we would see your power your victory in the land of the living that your kingdom would come that your will would be done on earth 
even as it is in heaven, through your people, through your ambassadors, through your, your kids here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.